Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Let's go ahead and begin um, with, uh, with uh, maybe with prayer and then we'll jump, in, jump into the conversation. Thanks, Lord, for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the chance that we have to talk about uh, things that matter because stuff that pertains to people and the journey they're on uh, matters to you. So I pray that you would help us even in this uh, time tonight to do good work uh, well. And we'll thank you for that. Um, amen. <coughs> so last week, uh, I just wanted to reset the table for what it is actually that we're trying to do in soul care as opposed to counseling. Uh, <coughs> in general, um, we want to partner with a counselor, and our job at the garden really is to, to yeah, thank you, Pete, is to really walk with, walk with people um, at the at the care of their soul level, right? Um, and it occurred to me, uh, and so if you haven't had a chance to uh, plug into the first set of conversations we had on soul care, that might be helpful to kind of get on the same same page because I don't want to go back all the way through that for those of you who've had it. However, um, it occurred to me, and I didn't write this down at all anywhere, that soul care maybe. It, would be helpful snapshot what that means, uh, what the soul is, so that we know what it is that we're caring for, if that makes sense. So the word soul in Greek is suke, from which we get our word psychology. In Hebrew, it's nefesh, and that's where it originates. And it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God br- takes the dust of the earth breathes into it the breath of life, and the outcome of those two components is nefesh, is is soul. Um, So those two components, physical, dirt, spiritual, breath of God, together are what make a soul. Um, So you, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a spirit but you're not spirit you have a body but you're not body those two components together are what make it possible for us to be who we are and do what God called us to do the two components physical and spiritual um, have three secondary elements that come out of them so to speak Uh, in emotional social and intellectual. So when I talk about soul, we're talking about five components, five elements of what it means to be soul. And those, those are, again, physical, spiritual, emotional, social, and intellectual. So when we talk about soul care, we're really talking about whole person, holistic care. A lot of the things that we wrestle with... Uh, are not spiritual in orientation. They might be emotional in orientation, especially when we're dealing with people going through trauma of one kind or another. The way trauma works itself out in people's lives uh, is depends on a variety of factors. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be isolationist. I mean, there's all kinds of things that go into that. 
Um, so I thought that might be helpful, um, and we can keep playing around with that as, as we go through here. But the reason I underline that is to say a lot of times, for example, when we're walking with people through depression that may result from loss. So one of the things that we're going to talk a little bit about later on tonight is how people deal with the loss of their marriage uh, is the gift that God has given us to deal with loss is called depression. It's mourning. It's grief. So we, we, the body, the spirit, everything slows down to allow the system to heal, to, to work through the pain, to work through that. So when we're doing soul care, we may see it show up in an emotional lethargy or a physical issue or, or social uh, isolation or whatever. So soul care has to be attentive to the ways in which pain starts to surface in, in, the, in, in, the, in the person. Does that make sense? Uh, and then care for them appropriate along those lines. And obviously for most of us, our primary point of care is going to be presence and prayer. Uh, creating a hospitable environment, a safe place for people. Um, to, to speak. So anyway, I, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but just by way of introduction, what it is that we're talking about when we do soul care. Any any questions or comments on that? Yeah. That part, you said soul care as attentiveness to pain someone is experiencing. Yeah, to the place that that pain surfaces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It should be over there. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yes, ma'am. Yep. No, that's great. Um, that's why I wanted to make the distinction, remember, between counsel and advice and soul care. Soul care isn't attempting to counsel or fix or give advice or speak from our own experience or anything. It's a journey of accompaniment. To some degree, yes. Yeah. And remember, our goal in all of this, like I have just at the lead paragraph there, is to help them become more fully themselves. So we're not fixing, we're walking with. Uh, and, and partnering with the Spirit and what He's doing in them. The one comment that I wanted to make... Any, any other questions on that, first of all? Sorry. Yeah. So I understand that, like, for you, if you're a pastor, so people will, like, call you up and be like, I have a problem, care for me. But, like, in other cases, like, in what context is this? Great. Brilliant. Great question. So it could be in a life group or a community group, rather? It could be in a friendship. It could be as we as the garden develop a team of persons who have gone through some of our conversations in soul care and maybe they'll get in touch with the garden uh, office. Pete or somebody will then put them in touch with uh, you and you might just accompany them for this season. So it would look like that perhaps. Yeah, please. Describe the situation. 
Uh, and the key piece on that is that this is a way of discipling, right? So it's not about expertise. It's not about mentoring. It's just about shared journey in trying to help each other stay out of the deep weeds. Yeah, it's probably. I'm just saying, if, I, if I were to get divorced, and then, well, I know, but I'm just saying, if somebody my age were to get divorced, yeah, yeah. we're not, um, it would probably be hard for me to be on a level with, say, somebody that's yeah, 30 years younger yeah, than me. Yeah, no, that's true. So, we, I mean, we'll, we'll probably do our best to try and, and, and match to the degree that we're able. Uh, and to the degree that we have people who have kind of got what we're doing. Yeah. And remember, in that, our first series of conversations, I really tried to dial back what soul care is. It's not advice. It's not counsel. You're, you're, it, it is really partnering with the Spirit in what He is doing in people's lives in the moment. So it's, it's less about um, shared experience, let me tell you what my experience is, and more about uh, how can I pray for you, how can I walk with you in this, in, in this journey. Yeah, I think Pete's got that on the... Okay.
The other thing from last week, um, I had a couple of people come and talk to me afterwards, and so I realized that I had created an impression that I want to address. Maybe that's why everybody's gone. I don't know. Um, But in trying to talk about the so-called biblical stance on divorce last week, um, I I think I mistakenly maybe left the impression that all divorces are okay biblically. Um, And that is not true. And it's not what I think I was trying to do, but I didn't do it very well. So all I was trying to say is that if we're going to understand what Jesus is actually saying is divorce, we have to hear what he says in his context and and understand it that way, which is very, very different from our 21st century context. So um, the, the, the point was that He's not trying, I'm not trying, nor is Jesus, to legitimize any and all divorce now in the 21st, because we, we have addressed those social problems of women's rights and care for, for women in those kinds of environments. So now it's okay. Um, divorce is still contrary to what God intended marriage and marriage relationship to be like. So I still want to contend for, I want to fight for, to the degree that I'm able, marriage. Um, I just want to say, however, at the same time, uh, to kind of limit the... I grew up in an environment in which, as maybe some of you did, um, to to be divorced was a kind of a scarlet letter in in a church environment. And biblically, there's there's no warrant for that. Um, except for bad exegesis, which hopefully we can move, move past. So even in my soul care, I'm going to continually push people towards reconciliation if I'm given that opportunity. I'm, I'm going to contend for the marriage. Somebody needs to kind of hold that up as a value, and that will always be as much as possible um, the hope that we'll be able to help people come come to places of, of health and wholeness when it when it comes to 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 long term marriage and whatnot because I think that's still God's primary way of demonstrating how he loves the world and cares for it, right? However, when the marriage dies for one reason or another, divorce isn't the worst possible thing that can happen to somebody. And even if it is there's still forgiveness, there's still grace, there's still restoration. And, and that, that's the piece that we want to put, in, put into place. Does that make sense? Um, so, so uh, anyway, I've, based on some of the questions that came out last week, I wanted to come back at this. Uh, it, because I don't take divorce lightly. Uh, it is painful uh, at pretty much every level, uh, not just for the individuals directly involved, but to, for the ripple out of family and networks and friendships and, and, and whatnot. Uh, my own um, son's divorce severed our family's connections with my former daughter-in-law's family with whom we had 
friendship and uh, we tried to maintain it after the divorce and it was just it was too challenging uh, to to do that so I I want to put that on the table anyway sometimes though the marriage has died and divorce just recognizes that reality and we don't need in addition to the pain of that dissolution to layer shame and the worst possible thing you could have done on top of that because it isn't does that help I don't know that said um, and this is going to be repeat for some of you who did some of the pre-marriage pre-engagement stuff I don't know who that was though I don't know if any did you guys do that one yeah so this will be fitting into there I, uh, I want to talk about give you some framework for what happens or why divorces occur statistically uh, so that as we then come back around and say, what does soul care look like? We can set it in frame. Uh, so the first, this is what I'm after here when I talk about soul care framed in reality. Uh, some introductory comments. The first one is that um, 40 to 50 percent, depending on what state you're in, uh, Bible Belt is slightly higher, uh, South is slightly higher. Uh, Southern California is slightly higher than Northern California for whatever reason. Anyway, between 40 and 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That's a statistic that you hear an awful lot of. The, the mistaken use of that statistic, however, does not take into account that that's all marriages, including second, third, and fourth marriages. So if you take just first marriages... That number drops down between to between 25 and 30 percent. So between 25 and 30 percent of all first marriages end in divorce, which says then if you've been divorced, you have a greater likelihood of being divorced again. So we need to say, and and in our walking with people um, uh, who who may be seeking to escape a situation. Uh, really help them come to the determination of what it is that actually might be going on there. The other piece, though, that is fascinating to me is that that number, 15, uh, 25% to 30% of first marriages and a divorce, drops almost in half, less than half, to between 10 and 12% of marriages with the benefit of good pre-marriage counseling and in divorce. So one of the best warders off one of the best way to ward off uh, e divorce is to do good solid work in premarriage counseling not just jump through the hoops of it but really do the work of having the hard conversations um, and and doing doing that work does that make sense so uh, I need to be I, we can head off and help people with a lot of the issues of divorce if we can maybe get some sense of what kind of preparation that they they had heading into that, and that might be might be helpful in our care care for them. Questions, comments. I'm going to try and remember to stop all the time, but once I get going, I just can to go. So you need to throw things at me or raise a hand. That would be preferable, frankly, but whatever works. Okay, so um, the likelihood of divorce. Um, is increased if and here's a range of things so when I'm walking with people I want to have some awareness of, of of what that these factors are either of you have either of the persons have had parents who were divorced 
So you almost double your chances of divorce if one or the other of you had a parent who was divorced. Now, that depends statistically on the age at which you were when your parent got a divorce. So the younger you were, and particularly up through about 12 or 13, that's when that one really kind of lands. Um, Second, if either of you have parents who were addicts, you have a high degree, higher degree of divorce. So alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling are the top four addictions that correlate to this. There are other workaholism is another one that can do some correlation. Spirituality is another one that can do some correlation. But the top four alcohol, drugs, sex and gambling are the are the primary ones there. Um, You double your chances of divorce if either of you are below the age of 20. Uh, when when the courtship phase of your relationship begins, as opposed to the dating, huh? When the courtship yeah, when the well, you can date, but if you're below the age of 20, when the courtship phase, i.e., there's an us now that is moving aggressively towards or assertively towards marriage, uh, below the age of 20, um, and I can talk about why any of these are if you want to or not. Okay, Uh, you increase significantly the likelihood of divorce if either of you have been in a sexually active relationship. Uh, Either with your fiance or with a partner prior to that, to them, either of you. Um, Because uh, one of the top two reasons cited for divorce is sexual uh, stresses and difficulties in marriage. And this one particularly sets you up for that, principally because pre-marriage sexuality and post-marriage sexuality are very, very different. And um, the one doesn't prepare the way for and damages the health of the other. So that's one. Um, it, and this one tracks with it, but it is an interesting stat. That is, if you have lived with your fiancé prior to marriage. So if you've lived together before you've, you've gotten married, you increase the likelihood of divorce as well. So even, yeah. So, so even in our care with people, we can, whether at the you know, divorce level or not, just walking with folks, we can help people hopefully come to an awareness. And by the way, none of these are... 100% certain, right? It's just that, it, which is lucky for you two guys, I think. You're just. Definitely <laughs> and it's about time. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but but the, the point that I was wanting to make is that so when we're walking with people, even in our own journeys, it, it, we can, to the degree that we're able in soul care environments, help people head off future kinds of things. Uh, there's a reason, for example, God talks about some of this stuff, right? It's not bad because he says it's bad. He says it's bad because it's damaging to us. Yeah, it... it, it, it you, some of them, some of them are, are stronger. Um, and the, for example, the the addiction thing 
is is almost you almost double your chances. Uh, the sex thing is almost double your chances. Uh, the married thing is almost two thirds if, if, if you're below the age of 20. And the reason for that one is that at age 20, you're not even a person yet. Right. It takes another three to five years for your brain to get solid enough to be able to the prefrontal cortex takes until about 24, 25 to to assume its final shape so to speak. And, and the, the, the solid self doesn't really start to emerge until post high school. So if it's very rare for a couple to fall in love in high school or even college and, and, and early stages of college and, and stay on through there unless they're willing to make fairly substantial changes in their ways of relating to each other that are unrelated to their accommodation of one another. In other words, the solid self has to be allowed to emerge and the relationship has to be allowed to flex as that solid self emerges. And without that, then the whole thing breaks. In other words, if I am who I am because I'm with you, well, what happens if I change? And then it, that's what goes sideways on that one. Yeah, post 25, late 20s are the most stable marriages. And principally for these, these kinds of reasons, yeah. There's a number of factors in that, so, but that's 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 exactly what happens. In fact, what what I because I've got kids in school who've been dating since they were in junior high school, right? They go into the same Christian school, they go to the same Christian high school, they go to the same Christian college, and I'm saying you probably haven't been dating the same. It's probably been three or four different relationships all with the same person, right? Like, like marriage, there's seven different marriages, four main marriages and three transitional marriages. And the goal, and, and it, interestingly enough, the divorce statistics, which we'll look at here in just a minute, track those transitional periods. So you, you're married to the same person, but you have seven different marriages. You go through different seasons, and if there's not a solid enough self to make that transition, that's when it starts to crack around the edges. Yeah. That makes sense. Your comment last week, where some some lady came up to you and said her husband didn't understand her. Right. Right. That's right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, 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 there's a couple of factors that, are, that, that go into that, but the primary one is that premarried sexuality is primarily about pleasure and, and, and has a high degree of adrenalinization. Married sexuality, while it has about pleasure, cannot be about pleasure because it's about responsibility. It's about intimacy. Pleasure is a wonderful component of that, but if it becomes the center of the target, of, then, then sex can't handle that. And post-married sexuality has almost no adrenaline in it. So the hypercharged sexuality of premarriage cannot be equaled with the normal sexuality of post-marriage. So in about six months, marriage becomes boring, uh, uh, sex becomes boring. So if, if pornography, for example, was a factor prior to marriage, it shows back up again in about six months, right? Because we're trying to re-adrenalinize to get the same feeling, pleasure feeling back that was uh, um, part of premarriage sexuality. And, of course, the issue is never, wait a minute, I've got to learn a healthy new way of sexuality and I'm going to pay the next five years to figure out how to do that because that's about how long it takes. Uh, it's, well, something's wrong with my partner so, or, or something. So let's just kind of spice it up somehow. And that's where all of the videos and creams and toys and other kinds of things start to show up. No, no, as long as they maintain their proper place with sexual intimacy as being about pleasure, but only limitedly so. Yeah, so from a biblical standpoint, the purpose of sexuality, one of the primary ones is children. So you ought not ever to have sex with somebody who you wouldn't trust to raise your children. You ought never to have sex if you're not ready to have children. This is, the, this is the biblical model that says that's why you need to be in a covenant relationship in order to support what, a, what may naturally occur, right? Now, that's not the only reason, and it doesn't always happen. But when you, when you separate sexuality from the possibility of pregnancy... You change the nature of sexuality. And it, and it inevitably slides towards pleasure, which then inevitably, almost inevitably, moves away from the intimacy for which it was primarily designed as well. Uh, it can. Uh, in, in fact, what I do when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling with people, I'm saying, now, don't be alarmed. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do birth control or or whatever else. But what it means is you should still have the conscious awareness of the likelihood, the possibility. Uh, and so if children are not on, on uh, 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 an option for one reason or another, operations or medical conditions or whatever else, that means you need to be probably more intentional about the relational components of sexuality and 
be, and, the, and what I call the responsibility components of sexuality. No, if if there if if both parties are virgins, and and there's a couple of other ands in there, but if they if both parties are virgins and their first sexual experience, first orgasm, etc., is with a partner, and they have then begun to develop the other five levels of intimacy, then then they don't have to worry about the five-year piece. God's strategy on that is almost pure genius, which is what kind of you'd expect but um it, it the, the the relearning piece because sexuality is so powerful uh, we've even now moved identity to it right because it's so powerful that to relearn it in helpful ways takes just a huge amount of effort and energy it's not insurmountable it's not impossible it's just requires an enormous amount of work. You were, you, I forgot your name over there. You asked that question. Christine, uh, Christine asked that question. You about the toys and things and whatnot. And you were answering it and you said something about it's, you know, it's not, nothing is unscriptural as long as it's in its proper place and responsibility. Yep. responsibility. Yep. And the responsibility part of yeah, responsibility is the possibility of pregnancy. Okay. So, I, I, again, this, is, this would be my... I like, as you probably have already figured out, to say things that kind of shock people into listening to me. <laughs> um, and I do that a lot when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling because especially with what I call the hoop jumpers, I want them to, to realize this, this is a big deal. Yeah. And, and what ends up taking a hit is that... Marital sexuality is built on healthy development in the five intimacies. Social and intellectual primarily, right? And then emotional, uh, spiritual, and physical intimacy without becoming sexual. So there are about 17 stages of physical intimacy that aren't sexual in orientation. Right? So I want to create as much health in there as I can. So those kind of mechanical devices, whatever they might be, um, need to be in the context of that whole five-dimensional piece. What you discover is if those five-dimensional levels of intimacy are in place, you don't need anything else. Especially because for, for women, sexuality is almost all about those other five levels of, 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 uh, of intimacy. Okay, so, and then the final piece I just turned over and I realized I got one more under here. Uh, soul care framed in reality. The likelihood is if your dating relationship has failed to enable the healthy, uh, failed to help you develop healthy methods of conflict resolution. Um, a lot of dating, like I, I mentioned last time, is about play, so we never fight. And as a result of that, we never learn how to fight. And as a result of that, 
uh, we don't know how to resolve conflicts. And that tends to be the number one predictor or, or, or correlate, if, I, if you will, uh, uh, towards um, marital longevity. If you, if you can resolve conflict in a helpful way and move forward, then you have a greater likelihood. It stands to reason, but yeah. Okay, so that's that one. Um, now, the divorce statistics, like we said, between 10 and 12% drop dramatically if there's focused premarriage counseling that focuses on these things and particularly includes strategies of conflict resolution. So this is one of the reasons why we ask people who want to get married at the garden to go through the Rock Harbor uh, course on seriously dating or in pre premarried counseling. Because uh, Roger does a phenomenal job of leading people through strategies of conflict resolution and so on. Um, uh, so that's, that's the, the key thing, especially when you realize now every couple has between five and ten irreconcilable differences. just want to let that sink in for a second. Every couple has between five and ten irreconcilable differences. That is to say... Things that will never, ever be reconciled. That you will be fighting, if you choose to, on your 50th wedding anniversary about. And they can be great and small things. They can shift over time. Right? But the reason I use that language, irreconcilable differences, is because that's the language often that gets published as cited, reasons cited as leading towards divorce. We have irreconcilable differences. And my response every time I hear that is, well, so does everybody else. Right? So figure out how to live with somebody who's not you. That's the challenge. And that really is the, remember the conversation we were having last time. He, he, is everybody else hearing that? Oh. Whoa. <laughs> um, but anyway, does, does that make sense? So, so it's, it's like, uh, of course he doesn't understand you. You don't make any sense to him. Right? And you can't explain yourself to him in a way. There's no place in his brain to file away the way that you think. There just isn't. And by the way, you don't understand him either in, in, in multiple ways. So that 5 to 10 thing is simply a way of saying... Okay, so I get divorced because I have irreconcilable differences. Then I get married to somebody else. Guess what? Every married couple has between five and ten irreconcilable differences. So now I've just traded one set of irreconcilable differences for another. They might be easier to live with, easier to accommodate... Or I might have realized, oh, wait, the common factor here is me. I think I need to make some adjustments in my expectations or demands or whatever. But nonetheless, does that make sense? Okay. Anybody? Questions? We good? Can you just give me an error? Can be tiny little things. Yeah. Uh, ooh, that's a new one. I haven't heard that. Usually, you... Yeah, no, yeah, that, that would be that. But they, they, a lot of them are along those lines. Um, and it's silly because 
close the door yourself. But that's not how we think. Um, but some of them are, are larger. So, so I'll, I'll occasionally deal with people who in their dating relationships don't discover, for example, until they're engaged that she has uh, previously had an abortion. And that can be a deal breaker because that's not going to go away. Right? Uh, so that's, that's one set that I, I want to work with. Uh, on the other stuff, uh, how you deal with catastrophic grief. A child born with uh, some, some deficiency. We'll use that language. I don't want to offend anybody. But you, you know what I mean? A, a, a trauma, a parent that, that dies or the long-term care of a parent. And how, how, do, we, how do we do that uh, is often creates those kinds of rifts in the, in the relationship, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so that, that's one. The, the, is most marriages, like I've mentioned before, will have at least uh, three or four difficult spots in them. Uh, as we grow and develop and mature, we'll hit white water. Uh, parents of preschoolers have a real challenge maintaining health in their marriage because almost all the energy of the marriage goes to looking after the preschool kids. Um, there are some other factors in, in, in there, but it, it, usually three or four fairly substantial and sometimes fairly long patches of, of real difficult um, transitional things. Um, and if we can care for people through those patches, on the other side is another marriage that's healthier to the same person, right? But often the white water, the patches are also occasions uh, in which I think maybe my soulmate's somebody else. Or uh, I'm susceptible to an affair with somebody at work. I sat with somebody last night uh, who, who blew herself up. Uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a similar kind of, kind of situation. Uh, so that doesn't mean the marriage is over. Because remember, like we said last week, even adultery isn't requirement for getting a divorce. You can recover from that. It's hard work, but you can recover from it. And the marriage can be stronger, deeper, and more intimate after catastrophe than it was before. But that requires some some energy and work, and a lot of it, not just at the counseling level, but also at the soul care level. So that's why we put that in that, in, in, in there. Um, okay, any, any other questions? How are we doing? All right, so divorce occurs somewhat predictably at three major places and a couple of minors. The first blip in the divorce statistics is six months. Um, the six-month blip uh, usually is one of three or four things. Uh, first one is unhelpful or unhealthy dating practices. Uh, so, again, their dating relationship, they fell in love, they're infatuated, they got 
engaged and married within two months. Um, and then they discover who they're married to because uh, dating didn't reveal or undercover that. Now, there are stories of people who have met that dramatically who are still married 50 years later. Uh, it's uncommon, but it happens. But let's the exception proves the rule in, in, in my view. So in normal circumstances, I want people to work really, really hard in their dating relationships fight as much as they can, get as much out of the, uh, learn how to negotiate the hard conversations as much as they can so that when they're working together on a, on a, on a wedding and when they're moving towards building a life together, they've, they've already learned the languages and the ways and means, right? Um, the second one is that they've had ina inadequate or non-existent pre-marriage counseling. So six months in, it, it, the first blip occurs because they never had the hard conversations or whatever. They haven't, they're, they're doing a lot of what I call the roommate stuff with their husband or wife. Most roommate stuff should be worked out with somebody you don't care about anymore, like a college roommate. You, you know what I mean by roommate stuff? Um, how do you define clean? Right? Um, that's roommate stuff because one family system defines clean in one way. Another family system defines clean in another way. You get those two family systems coming together in terms of roommates and there's oil and water. There's, there's, there's tension and trouble. So it's helpful to recognize that other people in the world think about those things differently than you do. And it's helpful to work those out with somebody you don't care about all that much. Whereas the, for the first time you've ever lived with somebody other than yourself as a single child of a doting family um, is with your roommate who happens to be your husband or wife, inevitably there's going to be problem. Right? Should. I don't This could be a problem. <laughs> but do you, do you see what, what we're after there? So that's, that's another set of issues. Uh, then idealistic distortion is, is probably one of the primary ones. Idealistic distortion is where people have uh, ideals about what marriage should be like or about what their, who their partner is. So if they have an idealized understanding of their husband or wife, for example, reality comes crashing down pretty quickly because there is no such thing as an ideal husband and wife unless you don't know who actually you're living with, right? Uh, so idealistic distortion, um, and that can be pretty alarming. And then unrealistic expectations, tend to track along with that uh, of what marriage is supposed to be like, uh, what sexuality is supposed to be like, what conflict resolution is supposed to be like, what communication is going to be like, all of those dynamics, uh, unrealistic expectations. And then one of the major ones, uh, and this is more so in the younger marriages, uh, below the ages of 25 or so, is failure to differentiate from the family of origin. 
there's three levels of differentiation of leaving home. The first one is to, um, uh, to, 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 to leave home and to become a whole person without reference to your family of origin. Right? The second one is to become an independent person from the significant other. That second stage is, in other words, I don't want to be in, a, in, a, in an enmeshed relationship with my husband or wife. I want to be a differentiated relationship with my husband or wife. I don't, I don't want to vibrate when they vibrate. I want to have the freedom to let them vibrate without me doing that. That requires a fair degree of differentiation, right? And then the third one is when you give your parents permission to leave home. That is, you let them be adults without reference to you. You don't have to explain them or fix them or apologize for them. You just let them be who they are. And that is often the most difficult one for anybody who cares. Uh, but the first one, this failure to differentiate from the family of origin, is probably the first. That's what fuels the blip in the six-month divorce statistic, where mom or dad has primary voice into the marriage over husband or wife. Questions, comments, or thoughts on any of that before we keep moving along? Okay, the next blip in the divorce statistics and the largest one is between five and seven years. Um, and this one is uh, primarily due to boredom, uh, where the marriage has been taken for granted. The relationship has not had any investment in it. Uh, it kind of just dwindles out and runs its course. Um, there's the failure to do the hard work of love by choice. Uh, uh, Often children have replaced the spouse as the center of the relationship, which is not healthy for the kids, of course, or for the marriage. Uh, and this one particularly usually has an emotional or sexual um, attraction component to it. So at the place of greatest dissatisfaction with my marriage, uh, I will coincidentally meet my soulmate at the water cooler at work or at the bar after work or finally somebody who will just listen to me and they they really understand me uh, and even if there's no remember most physical affairs don't begin there they begin with emotional affairs they begin with affairs of the heart where where I finally am understood by somebody I finally connect with somebody uh, and my husband or wife doesn't listen to me the way he or she does or whatever it is. Uh, so that's, that's the other component to that. So you can see how the soul care piece shifts when we're talking with newly marrieds and walking with them through whitewater time as compared to people who have been on the road here for five or six or seven years and walking with them in that, in that, that journey, right? And then the final one. Uh, third largest number of divorce, second largest number of divorces is between the 20 and 25 years. Um, and this one is primarily uh, the outcome of children's leaving home. Uh, children were brought into a five to seven year marriage as a way to save it. So we won't work on our marriage, we'll just have kids. 
and kids don't make a weak marriage strong. They tend to create chaos in, in, in it. But we stay together for the sake of the kids. So number one or three or whatever it is gets married, and then the day after the wedding, it's like, I don't even know who you are anymore. We, and I'm not even sure I want to know who you are anymore. And so that one is the main, main thing. The children were the glue that kind of held everything together. Um, the, nothing was built in then to the core couple. They didn't realize, for example, when, if children are brought in to save a marriage, they often become the center of the marriage. And kids aren't built to be the center of marriages. They're built to be in orbit around the center of the marriage so that they can launch off at 17 or 18 or 19, somewhere in there, and go and be their own planets in their own little solar systems, wherever it is. And mom and dad still have identity, purpose, focus, intensity apart from them. We don't, we don't need them, right? But if the kids are brought in to save the marriage, they often become the glue that holds it together and feel responsible when it breaks apart. Uh, and we're going to talk next time about how to care for children uh, do soul care with kids uh, as as they walk through uh, the divorce of their parents, even years later, because uh, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, the, like like we indicated, if either of the couple has had a parent who's been a divorced, has been divorced, that increases their likelihood of divorce. Um, so anyway, um, and the the. Obviously, you're getting the 20 to 25-year piece is often the delayed reaction to um, problems that developed earlier and were never properly dealt with. So we, we haven't learned to fight, and we just go into detente. You know, we don't talk to one another. Uh, he has his space, I have my space, and we just kind of get through the day. And so when the kids leave, what's the point in hanging in there anymore? Okay, questions on any of that before we shift over to the soul care piece of this? You want to take a short break? And then so let's do about five or ten minutes, and then we'll start to dig into the pieces on that. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.